We're going to look at verses uh, 16 there through uh, verse 21. And uh, again, may I give my greeting to you this morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. So glad to be worshiping Christ with you on this Easter resurrection morning. Uh, As we uh, consider God's word and we kind of get led into it, I wonder if you could think about what would make your list of the greatest words that you have ever heard. What makes it to the top of the list of the greatest words you've ever heard? Well, perhaps this morning it's the words, it's a girl from the maternity ward. Or, as some dear friends here in the second row told me in the hallway, this year, 60-plus-year-old man, Josh, it's a girl. Maybe it's the words, you finished. You finished. You know, that degree program, that work training program, or for many in our fellowship, The words that you've heard when you've made it through the doctor's office. You've heard the good news. You've finished. You've passed. You've completed the process. Maybe it's the words, I love you too. You know that awkward moment and that relationship where you've gone out on that very long limb and you're the first one to use the L word. Yes, and there's that long pause where you're hoping the response isn't, thanks, (laughs) but I love you too. These words matter. Words matter. And whatever uh, makes it to your list of the best words you've ever heard, uh, we are looking at the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, words that could arguably be the best things Jesus has ever said. And if you haven't heard them before, or if you have not really considered them deeply before, the things that Jesus says here, you really should consider them because they are really, really good. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are those the greatest words you've ever heard? In order to answer that question with some intellectual honesty, you would have to ask, how do I measure that? Right? How would you measure if those words are actually the best words you've ever heard? If you want to measure ingredients for a recipe, you'd use a measuring cup. If you want to measure the length of a room for a do-it-yourself project, you would use a tape measure. But how would you measure if those are the greatest words you've ever heard? In order to measure if those are the greatest words you've ever heard, you'd have to know how to measure God's love. For love to matter... You have to measure it. But how do you measure God's love? For love to matter really, you have to measure it truly. Right? And we measure God's love when we look at what someone does and for whom they do it. This is how you measure God's love, by looking at who he loves and what he does. How do you measure God's love? Look at who he loves 
and what he does. So let's pay attention this morning in John 3, 16 and following to who God loves and what he does. That is the measure of God's love. And for this love to matter, you have to measure it correctly. So let's start with who he loves. It says in John 3, 16 that he loves the world. For God so loved the world. Now, if we interpret this as children, we hear how big is God's love, right? He loves the whole world. And then we hear it with such intensity. He loves the whole world so much. But it is not its bigness that is in view here. It is its badness. In other words, we're not to admire God's love for the world because he loves so many but because whom he loves is so wicked. For in John's theology who wrote this gospel, the world is not a good place. The world isn't even a neutral place. The way John uses the word world, he speaks of it as a hostile place. Mankind is hostile against God. To see this a little clearer, would you do one Bible flip with me? If you're new to using a Bible, it's page 942 in that red Bible, okay? But if you are more seasoned, turn to the right. We're going to find Romans. The large number is 5. That's the chapter. The small number is the verses. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8. And we're going to look at two words, each in turn, to show us more of who it is that God's love so that we actually know how to measure it and for this love to matter in our life. Listen to how God describes us in the first one here. In Romans 5, 6. Large number chapter, small number verses. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the, last word, ungodly. Ouch. This is the measure of God's love by looking at who he loves, the ungodly. Now, Aretha Franklin is the queen of soul, and she sang R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect, right? And what ungodly means is no respect for God. Respect means that you recognize them for who they are and that you treat them as such. And to be ungodly means that you don't either recognize God as God or you don't treat him as such. And what we find is that most people don't treat God as God, right? We don't pay much attention to Him. We don't care too much for God. Life is too busy to fit Him in with all the work and all the kids and all the Netflix and all the do-it-yourself projects and the sports and the friends. Well, there is little room for God. And when we don't respect God, we use Him. I have a friend who says, oh, Josh, you know, I talk to God. Whenever I'm in trouble, you know, I ask him for help. But friends who only call when they need something aren't really friends. It's like treating God as your plumber. Sure, you have his number saved in your cell phone, but it's under plumber. You don't know his name, and you only call him when the faucet is leaky or the pipes have burst. God says we are ungodly. We don't treat him as God, we don't recognize him as God, and that we end up using him. Second word is in verse 8. 
Again, 5.8. Here's our second word. It's the word sinners. Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, it's another ouch word. Now, we might think as sinners, as the naughty type, those that indulge, right, in those guilty pleasures. But the word sinners, especially with this whole Word of Life student group here, the word sinners, just as you guys know, means miss the mark. Students want to pass exams, but not all pass exams. Some miss the mark. They get an F. Now, imagine, students, that you walk up to your teacher at Word of Life and you say, I feel I did enough to pass. I demand that you pass me. That would be crazy, right? You don't set the standards. The organizational authority sets the standards, and teachers are just there just to enforce it. And they said, you got a 50%. Congratulations. You get an F. Well, that's what we do with God, right? We think that being good is good enough. But we decide for ourselves what good is. And it's just so funny that we always seem to pass that test. But when it comes to life's performance exam, God sets the standard. And God's standard is not a 50%. It's not 60%. It's not 70%. It's not 80%. It's not 90%. It's not even 99%. God's standard for your life exam is 100%. He calls for perfect love and complete obedience. And we fail. Truth be told, we fail miserably. So God doesn't love the world because of us. God loves the world despite us. That's what John 3.16 is getting at. And so for this love to matter for you this morning, as the greatest love, you have to measure it. And you measure how amazing God's love is by whom he loves. He loves people like you and me who have only done things to deserve his anger. And this love matters. Think about the implications. If God truly loved you like this, you can have security. I want you to think about that for a second. You can have security security if God loves you like this. People struggle believing in God's love and that God loves them. And as we look at our past performance, we go, after all I've done, can he love me? We, we look at our present performance. We say, I haven't been to church in a really long time. Since last Christmas, last Easter, I haven't read my Bible a lot. And then we think about our future performance, and we say, those were the standards from the Ten Commandments that we heard? Oh, there's no chance I'm going to meet those. And so we worry. We worry we are in danger of losing God's love, that God would be disappointed. But friends, what a tremendous relief it is that God's love for you and for me is utterly realistic, based at every point on a prior knowledge of who you are and based upon a prior knowledge of the worst about you. So that there is nothing that God could learn about you that would make him disillusioned and say, oh, that's who you are? Forget it. At every single point, he knows the worst about you and has already said, God so loved the world. In other words, here it is, God's love is not dependent upon you. My young men, 
Okay, here's an illustration for you. You are not a part of God's fantasy football draft in which you're some kind of sleeper pick. And then you've let him down because you didn't live up to what he was hoping you would be for his fantasy kingdom. No. God did not set his love upon a mature version of you. God did not set his love upon you, waiting for you to get your act together so that he can finally love you. No, he loved you when you were his sworn enemy. And that's what makes what God does for us all the more incredible. How do you measure God's love? First, you look at who he loves. He loved the unlovely. He loved the undeserved. He loved his enemies. But also look at what he does. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How do we know that God loves the world? By what he does. We see it in that God gave. God displayed his love. God demonstrated his love so that it can be measured. Do you know that God is not up in heaven, in the security of heaven, mouthing to you? God is not in the security of heaven saying, I love you with a whisper. No, God displays his love for you from the anguish of the cross 2,000 years ago. Friends, 2,000 years ago in the history, uh, in the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, a 33-year-old man was crucified. His name is Jesus. And his death on the cross is hard evidence of your hatred for God. And his death on the cross is the hard evidence of his love for you. And you say, how is that love for me? That's a great question. How does Christ's death on the cross actually demonstrate that God loves you? Well, imagine for a moment that you are in the beautiful land of Florida. You're in the beautiful waters, but you know that in Florida there's a lot of crocodiles. But you and your wife, you decide, you know what, let's go ahead and go out there and rent those glass-bottom kayaks so we can see all that's around us. And so you're out there in these beautiful waters with your glass-bottom kayak. Your wife has one, you have one. The sun is setting. You look over at her and you whisper, I love you. She looks back at you and she says, prove it. And you immediately jump out of your kayak to which the crocodile comes, takes you under, and you die. What do you prove? That you're an idiot. <laughs> yes. But imagine for a second you're in those same waters with your glass-bottom kayak and your wife loses her balance and she falls in. And you see that there is a crocodile there, one with big eyes, making its way right towards her. And right before the crocodile takes her under, you jump out of your kayak in between your beloved and the crocodile, and the crocodile takes you under and you die. Your wife scrambles back into her kayak, and you would say, that is hard evidence of your love for her. Why? Your love for her could be measured by your death for her life. She could actually say, I live because he died for me. And that's a love that matters. And that's a love you can measure. Friends, on the cross, Jesus dies for us. And it's a love that matters. 
It's a love that you can measure. For we are in real peril if it was not for this love. Listen to John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, here it is, should not perish, but have eternal life. The word perish gives this verse some backbone. Because what it's saying is peril is the opposite of eternal life. And so if it wasn't for the intervention of this love, this is the eternal destiny awaiting all of us. This is a love that matters. We deserve God's judgment, but Jesus Christ receives God's judgment. On the cross, he takes the penalty for all of our disobedience and sin. My friends, he was sent for you. He was sin for you. And three days later, Jesus rises from the grave. He outwitted, outplayed, outlasted sin. He is the real survivor. And when sin has done its very worst, it was not enough to keep Jesus in the grave. The power of sin has been exhausted. It's done. Jesus' mission is now complete. And now the world can be saved through him. Listen to John 3.17, just the next verse down. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through This love matters, and this is how you measure God's love, by whom he loves and what he does. He gives himself, the very best of himself, Jesus Christ, for the good of others. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all of that begins with how you respond to the words of Jesus. Are those the greatest words you've ever heard? Everyone must answer. For love that matters always demands a response. About 19 years ago, I took out a little tiny black box. And on that day, I got down on bended knee Right? In fact, I was down on both knees. One knee is proposing, both knees is begging. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I professed my dying love uh, to my wife, Laura, and I asked her to marry me, and I asked if she would love me in return, and she said yes. Friends, the Bible is God's love letter to you explaining the depths that God went to woo you and to win you to himself, to save enemies, ungodly sinners, to bring you into a relationship with himself forever. And his love demands a response. What is the response that he is looking for? Well, it's again, it's in our verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. God is looking for faith. Now, if you think it is hard to define love this morning, it is equally hard to define faith. Many people, when they hear of faith, they think that's something you're either just born with, you either have it or you don't. Some people say, you know, I wish I had the faith, but I don't. Other people make you think that faith is some kind of disease. I suppose that's okay. If you got the faith, 
fortunately, I'm healthy. <laughs> Other people think that faith is something you have to work for, right? I'm trying to work up the faith. You develop it. But faith is just a connecting piece. That's all that faith is. Faith really only has eyes for what it connects you to. Let me use a trivial example for you. If I was to say, I trust my wife, you would not say, oh, what faith. You would say, what a wife. And it's the same thing with Christianity. If you have faith in Christ, we don't say, oh, what faith. As if you developed it. As if you had to really work it up to believe. No, we say, what a Savior. Because it's clear. It connects you with who He is. It connects you to His work, His achievement, His cross work. He rescues you from judgment. Look at John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. You can move from the world to whosoever because God demonstrated his love for you on the cross. And you can move this morning from perishing to eternal life when you believe in His one and only Son. Everyone this morning starts off perishing. And anyone, right, can believe. Absolutely anyone can move from perishing to eternal life. Everyone and anyone is what whosoever means. But most of us like to put exceptions on whoever. Some of us here really struggle to believe that God actually loves us. You can imagine that God loves other people. You just can't imagine that God actually loves you. Not because of the things that you've done. Not because of the mistakes that you've made. There is simply no way that God could love you. Some people believe I'm too bad to receive this. But on the other hand, there's others of you here this morning that think that you are too good to need this. One group thinks that they are the exception because they are so unworthy. The other group thinks that they are the exception because they are so good. The people who are good enough, religious, moral. But everyone starts off perishing. And whoever can move from perishing to eternal life if they believe. We struggle with whoever and John expects you to struggle with whoever. He actually expects you to reach for your exceptions. So John builds these chapters around the exceptions. If you've been tracking with us, John chapter 3 is all about this really, really good religious man named Nicodemus. And then in John chapter 4, which we're going to learn about in two weeks, we meet this woman who is designed to be the maximum contrast. In religious eyes, she appears to be very, very, very far away. And these stories are both written so that you can actually understand John 3.16. John 3.16 is the linchpin that holds the story of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman together. Everyone, even Nicodemus is perishing. Anyone, even the Samaritan woman, can believe and have everlasting life. Let me put it to you in the words that you heard last week. If even the best person must be born again, 
Even the worst person can be born again. In other words, if Nicodemus needs to believe, anyone can believe. That's the value of the Samaritan woman. She forces the offer genuinely open to anyone. So if you wonder this morning, if God really loves you, if God would ever want to have a relationship with you, or if anyone feels condemned by society, if she can believe, anyone can. Your exceptions are not comparable to the exceptional love of God. None of us is beyond the need of grace. None of us is beyond the reach of grace. The great shock of the gospel is that you meet people that no one expects God to rescue, and He offers them life and forgiveness. So how do you greet the news that God loves you? Given whom God loves... And what he does, does it not sound preposterous this morning that anyone would reject this? But the offer to all is not delivered to all. For some people prefer what they love instead of God's love. Listen to John three nineteen through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does these things, these wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What this verse teaches us is that this morning, people reject God not because of intellectual evidence, but because they love sin. It's not because you lack evidence. It's because you love sin. Their rejection is not intellectual, it's moral. In other words, people keep gods at arm's length, as Andy said, because they keep their sin close to their chest. And it's really hard to give God a forearm, right, while you're still holding on and nursing and protecting and feeding your sin. So a concealed sin could actually keep you from the compassion of the Savior. You're so attached that you're actually threatened by God's love. For God's love is not mere sentiment. It's a commitment, right? A commitment to give yourself in return to the one who loved you and died for you. A love that matters requires a response that's more than sentiment. It has to be a commitment. So my non-Christian friend, what prevents you from receiving and accepting the love of God and committing yourself to Him? I urge you to receive the greatest words for God, the greatest lover. So loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest enemy, that he gave the greatest act, his only son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity, in Him the greatest attraction, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Aren't these the greatest words you've ever heard? Are you ready to respond to His love? Stop measuring God's love by your circumstances and start measuring God's love by the cross.
Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?